Hey, this is Alex Moore, lead pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri. Thanks for taking time to listen to this message. For more information or to donate, visit newlifekc.com. Welcome to the final installment in our series that we're doing called The Lost Parables of Jesus. And as we've established, these aren't technically like lost parables that have somehow been rediscovered recently, but rather we're looking at these stories that Jesus told that have a central theme of something being lost and it needs to be found. And the good thing is, and I want you to know this if you don't get anything else today, is that Jesus is all about saving lost things. In Luke chapter 19, it says this, it says, For the Son of Man, which is Jesus, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Isn't that such good news? And so if you are lost in life, Jesus isn't just like, all right, you're lost. No, 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 he is seeking you. He is pursuing you. He is trying to get your attention. He is trying to get you to say, I'm gonna put my faith and my trust in you. I know that there's a better way. I need you, God. And so he is a God who is seeking to save that which was lost. That's so good. And so what we've been looking at these past several weeks are parables, Now, if you don't know what a parable is, a parable is just simply a short story that uses symbolic speech and word pictures to make a point. I was at a wedding yesterday, and uh, the the officiant was trying to use kind of like parable language with this uh, young couple who was getting married, and his opening illustration was that of being on the Titanic, and I thought, this is not going to be good. Good luck in your marriage. And then he went on to say it's the ship of death. And I was like, whoa. So um, not all parables are good, all right? Not all parables are good. The, The symbolic speech doesn't always work out. But Jesus, he was a master at telling parables. Like he did it right. Like there was no like Betty rolling their eyes like what is going on here? And so he is an excellent communicator. I think I could argue that Jesus was the best communicator to ever live. He was better than Billy Graham. He was better than any orator that you can picture throughout all of time. Think about this. Jesus communicated God's love for humanity through his life. There's no greater message that could be communicated. And he communicated it perfectly. He is the ultimate communicator. And when Jesus communicated, what's crazy about him is that there's this thing that is in the Bible. They teach us it in Bible college, and it's called like the hypostatic union. And it's this weird concept that God in Jesus, all right? So, so we have God who's this triune being, right? He's like three in one. He's the Father. He's the Son. He's the Holy Spirit. But what happened was, was that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, and so Jesus left heaven and took on flesh and was born to the Virgin Mary. Remember the story of Christmas? And so we have Jesus, and he didn't stop being God when he became Jesus, when he became man. No, he's still 100% God while somehow 100% man. He is both simultaneously. He didn't cease being one to be the other. And so he's 100% God. He's 100% man. And so when he began to teach people things, he taught things nobody could know. 
Because he was 100% God. He could teach people, humanity, spiritual truths, spiritual realities that only he knew. As humanity, we wouldn't know these things, but he, being fully God, has like an inside scoop. He knows things that we don't know. And so people were so drawn to him because he was revealing to people who God really was. How many of you growing up pictured God as like a, a, a judgmental, hard God who just was waiting for you to screw up? Anybody have like a hard picture of God? Like anybody? How many of you see God more as like Santa Claus? Yeah, he's all right. He's going to be good. He's going to always... Nobody's ever going to raise their hand to that. But we tend to be somewhere on that spectrum of like he's harsh and he's cruel and he's mean and he's just and he's going to make sure that everybody gets what they deserve. Or he's Santa Claus and he's just so nice. And I'm going to sit on this lap, I'm going to pray some prayers and ask for my daily bread and I get all the things I want, right? So we find ourselves somewhere in here. But when he began to speak, as he began to say, listen, you have a perception of what God is. Let me tell you what he's really like. And so he would use these parables. They're stories that used language that we could understand, but they were symbolic of much bigger things. And so for the past couple weeks, we've been looking at some of these parables. And all the lost parables we're looking at are found in Luke chapter 15. Who is texting me on a Sunday morning? Turn that off. All my Netflix memberships on hold. I don't even have a Netflix subscription. What do you think? All right. Don't you hate those texts? So... Luke chapter 15, that's where we're at. We've looked at two parables that Jesus taught so far. Today we're going to wrap this series up. We're going to look at the third and the final parable that Jesus tells. And and this third one is probably his most popular or most famous story that he's told. Here's where we start. Luke chapter 15, the first verse starts off by saying this. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. And this is remarkable. These are people who are not religious, but they want to be near Jesus. These are people who don't go to church every Sabbath, but they want to be near Jesus. These are people who probably thought that people who follow Jesus or people who follow God or people who are Jehovah worshipers, they're probably just hypocrites, right? They're just, you know, they're saying one thing and they're living another. I know who they are. I don't want to have anything to do with them. But they somehow, I want to be near Jesus. I got to be around this guy. And so what's crazy is that Jesus never looked down his nose at them. He never thought of the tax collector or the sinner as less than, as a lower part of society. He didn't consider their economic status. He didn't consider their church attendance. He didn't weigh those things on how he would treat them. Instead, Jesus freely welcomed them in. It would seem to some, that Jesus shouldn't spend his time with them. Jesus is providing spiritual realities. He's telling us things that we don't know. How could he waste his time telling that to people of no significance? He should be spending his time with people who love God and are in church, who have been studying him. He should spend time with, with the religious elite and help them have those aha moments as they wear their blazers with their elbow patches and smoke their pipes and talk about things of God. Not with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the notorious sinners. Jesus, what are you doing? You're not doing this right. And so these Pharisees and these scribes, these religious elite, they don't like that Jesus is doing this. And verse number two says that both the Pharisees and the scribes, they began to complain. 
It's never good when you start to complain. They started to complain, and they're complaining about Jesus. And they said, this man, Jesus, he's like receiving sinners, and he's eating with them. He's not just recognizing who they are, but he's actually accepting them and treating them like a peer and breaking bread and sharing with them. How can he do this? He shouldn't be with them. He should be with us. He should come to our dinner parties. We do it much better. He shouldn't be down with those people sharing these things. And, and what's interesting is that Jesus notices these complaints. He notices the attitude. He notices the spirit that these scribes and Pharisees has. And in verse 3 it says, And so he told them this parable. He sees this going on. He notices the tension. He's hanging out with these people. He's been sharing with them. But he says, oh, you guys don't like this. So let me tell you a story. And here's the story that he tells. Real quick, pop quiz. Who is the story directed towards? The Pharisees and scribes. Don't forget this. It's an important part. Good job in that. All right. Verse 3. And so he told them, the scribes and Pharisees, this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other 99 in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me because I have found my sheep that was lost." I tell you that in the same way, here's the symbolism, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need for repentance. You see what Jesus is doing? This is how the parables work. He's using words and stories that we all understand, but then he spins it and says, this is a spiritual reality in heaven. You don't know this, but there's parties being thrown when people are repenting. There's parties being thrown when one comes back. And here's the important part of parables. And I mentioned this in first, the first week. Parables require listeners to be self-aware and appropriately place themselves in the story. Like you got to find where you belong in the story. And Jesus knows where you belong. Sometimes we don't know where we belong. Sometimes we're not aware enough to know where I should be in the story. And so Jesus, again, is directing this parable, this short story with symbolism and word pictures toward the prejudice religious elite in order to make a point. And he starts by comparing them first to a man who has 100 sheep. In other words, he's comparing them, and he starts off this story by saying, imagine like you had a hundred sheep. Now, they're religious elite. They got their little pipes and their patches on. They ain't no shepherds. In fact, they probably don't even like that Jesus is acting like they should even understand what it's like to own a hundred sheep, because that job is below me. But Jesus is just subtle. Just imagine, you're a shepherd, you got a hundred sheep, and one leaves like... These people, I don't got no shepherd. I, oh, I have a shepherd. I pay him. He watches the sheep. I'm not that guy. And so he begins just to subtly reveal their prejudices to them. And, and Jesus doesn't give them a moment to respond when he's done with the story. Instead, he jumps into his second parable. And if they dislike being compared to shepherds, they're really going to dislike what Jesus says next. Verse 8. Or 
What woman? Oh, no. Now you're comparing me to a woman? Ah, uh, now this is like a really patriarchal society, and this would have been like, ugh. They would have been rolling their eyes. They'd be like, you're not comparing me to some woman, are you? And so here they are. Jesus is just continuing to push them to say, hey, think, think. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And again, Jesus doesn't give the Pharisees a chance to respond. He just jumps in to the next story, verse 11, and he said. And so Jesus is launching into this third and final parable, which is directed to the Pharisees and scribes. It's probably the most popular of Jesus' parables, uh, more popular than the lost sheep and the lost coin. This story has been called the lost son, or more commonly referred to as the prodigal son. You guys all heard this one? So sometimes, like, when you grow up in church like me, there are certain things that are, like, normal to you that shouldn't be normal to you, but just because you grew up in church, you consider it normal. So, for instance, you know, the word hallelujah, that's, you know, a common word in church. Hallelujah! But what does hallelujah even mean? So if you grew up in church like me, you're going to be like, what does hallelujah mean? Uh, I don't know. And there's other things, like hallelujah. What does Hosanna mean? We sometimes sing that in songs. Oh, What does uh, propitiation mean? Oh, oh. What does sanctification mean? Oh, oh. What does prodigal mean? It's one of those words. I grew up with it. I heard it. I know the story of the prodigal son. But what does the word prodigal even mean? I was surprised because I had to look it up because I didn't want to be ignorant from growing up in church. What does the prodigal mean? So a prodigal is actually an adjective. We're talking about the prodigal son. Remember, adjectives describes nouns. The noun's the son. It's the describing word. Okay, so here's our prodigal. And here's what the word prodigal means. It's an adjective. It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. It, it refers to a wastefully extravagant move. So when we talk about the prodigal son, we're talking about somebody who is being wastefully extravagant. Isn't that interesting? Some of you are like, I thought prodigal meant like you returned. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not when you find the roots of the word in the Latin. It means this. Now, we have changed, and I think they always change dictionary, right? They've added like, well, somebody who's like a reckless spender who like maybe came back, you know, that's part of it now as a noun, but never as an adjective. So anyway, that's just a bonus. Here we go. Verse 11. Let's look at this story. And he said, Jesus is still speaking. A man had two sons. You got the word picture going on. You picture it. You got the dad, you got the two sons. Jesus is introducing our story's characters. The younger of them, the younger son, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. It's really important that we hit pause right here. Because when Jesus' audience, who were Jewish in nature, would have heard this, they would have been leaning in, and they would have been thinking things that you and I aren't thinking. See, in Israel, where the people 
are from, it is pretty much established based on the Torah, based on what Moses wrote, that the oldest son should get a double portion. The first son, the first result of man's procreative ability. He would receive a double portion of the inheritance. And so the first son was seen as the successor to his father. He was the one to carry on his father's legacy. And it was only right for him to receive a double portion. Now, in our verse, it's the younger brother who asks his father to give him the share of the estate that falls to me. So if the older son gets a double portion, then the first son would receive two-thirds of the inheritance, 66.6%. And the younger son would receive one-third, the 33 and a third percent. Now, the inheritance is supposed to be given to the boy's when dad dies. That's the norm. What's unusual, but not unheard of, is the fact that the father divvies his inheritance up before he dies. But what's kind of even more unusual is that the younger boy requests his portion of the inheritance before his dad dies. I mean, it seems a little harsh. Like, dad, uh... I've been waiting for you to die, and you're taking too long. What do you think about giving me the stuff that you would give me when you do die? Because you're looking awful healthy right now. Like, can I just get the stuff now? Like, I don't want to say it, but I kind of wish you were dead so I could get the stuff. Now, we don't know the boy's motives yet, right? We just know he's asking dad for the inheritance. Can you give me what's coming to me? We already know it's coming to me. Can you just, you know, let's make it in advance. Give it to me soon. And so our verse says that the father divided his wealth between them. This was unusual. It wasn't unheard of, but this was a very unusual move by the father. Now, the two sons... The wealth was divided, one-third to the younger, two-thirds to the older. Now, we don't know if the older son actually received his portion of it or if it was just guaranteed that this is coming to you, but we do know that the younger son received his share. And verse 13 says, And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there... He squandered his estate with loose living. All right. Now the boy's motives have become clear. Why did he want his inheritance early? Because he was ready to move out. He was sick and tired of living at home with dad. I don't like the restraint here. I want to be my own man. I want to get the money so I can leave. I can exit. I can have the life I want. And I can live however I want, not in the watchful eye of my dad. I'm ready to delete Life 365 off my phone and live a little bit. Just let me out of the house. Notice, he gathered together everything he owned. He ain't planning on coming back, y'all. He ain't leaving something there at the house to come back to. No, no, I'm taking it all. I ain't coming back here. And notice, he didn't go to a different city, a different village. He went to a distant country. He got his passport and he is out. 
He ain't going to make, like, mom and dad ain't going to just happen to roll through town. No, no, no. If they come in, it's uh, on purpose. And I'm going to see them coming. I want them coming. I am out. Now, in order for the boy to have done this, it suggests that he must have converted whatever estate property that he received from his father and turned it into currency in order to take it and spend it. Can you imagine giving your son the family land? That's potentially been in your family for generations. And within days of him getting it, he puts it on the market, sells it. You got new neighbors, and he's got money, and then he's throwing a deuce sign as he U-hauls out of town. I don't know about you, but if I'm the dad, I'm not happy. This is not good. (laughs) And if all of that wasn't enough, he leaves He goes to a distant country, and then he squandered it. He didn't, like, invest it. He didn't become successful. He wasn't the next Bill Gates. No, he just blew it, and it's all gone. (sighs) Now, we don't exactly know what loose living means. Jesus doesn't define that, but I think we all kind of can fill in the gaps, right? Like, I don't know what that means, but I kind of know what that means. Verse 14. Now, When he had spent everything, like he didn't save any of it. He didn't have like a cash reserve. He didn't have an emergency. When he had spent everything, I don't know if you've ever been there. I've not been there. I don't want to ever be there. He had spent everything. Guess what happened? A severe famine occurred in that country. Shouldn't have gone to that country. (laughs) And he began to be impoverished. So... He went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Anybody know what swine are? Yeah, little little piggies. And so the Jewish people, see, the Jewish people would have heard this story, and this would have been like the ultimate indignity. Not only is caring for animals a distasteful job, but it's even worse to be caring for what the Torah teaches is an unclean animal. This would have been the worst thing that he could do. Verse 16 says, And and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Now, you don't talk about hitting rock bottom. When you're wanting to eat what the animals are eating and their pods, it's not even like a good thing. It's like from a carob tree. It's like pea pods. Like nobody wants, like, wow. He had traded what he saw as a yoke that was at home living with his parents and I got to do these things and I got to live this way. He had traded the yoke of living at home for the yoke that came with a life of sin. He found himself all alone. All the people that were there to help him in his loose living, where are they now? There ain't no one giving anything to him. Whatever friends he had, they're long gone. And where he was once motivated by a hunger for freedom and independence, all of a sudden now he's being motivated by extreme poverty and hunger. And verse 17 has a powerful phrase. But when he came to his senses. Mm. When he came to his senses, it's almost as though he's been beside himself. 
It's almost as though he knew what he was supposed to do, but he's been somehow or another deceiving himself and living this other thing. And when he came to his senses, it's like I'm leaving disillusionment. Ah, oh, she's going to be fine. It's going to be okay. It's just a credit card. I can do this. It's all fine. And he's being met with the facts of life. He's moved from fantasy of what I hoped it would be into reality. He has came to his senses. And he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will go up. I will, I will go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. The boy's attitude has changed. He started off wanting to be anywhere but home, but now he's thinking, oh, what it would be like to be home. He is seeing home in a whole new way. The, the old things that used to bother him have some now been transformed. And with his prepared speech, verse 20 says, so he got up and came to his father. But don't miss this while he was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. John T. Carroll, in his commentary on the book of Luke, says this, we should focus foremost on the undignified behavior of the father here. The father ran to the son, and to run with a tunic on without tripping, you had to hitch it up. Thus, the dignified elder would have his bare legs exposed. A big social faux pas. How is it that the father would have seen him a long way off if the father wasn't going looking? He didn't go to the distant country. But I wonder if every day the father went and looked down the road, hoping that he might see his son. And on this day, he saw him a long way off. <laughs> he doesn't care what anybody thinks. Undignified, what is this man doing? Grabbed his man robe up and ran. That's what I would call it. Verse 21, he gets to him. What, what did he do? He, he, he felt compassion for him. He ran. He embraced him, and he kissed him. You ever been kissed by your dad? Anybody remember that? It's that first time that you had whiskers on your face, and you're like, what is this? <laughs> I remember. Verse 21, he got the whiskery kiss. Dad's let his man rub down. He's looking at his son. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't get the whole speech out. Verse 22 says, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. 
and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate. The father brings out visible signs of position and acceptance for his son. Bring out the best robe. No, 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 not my bathrobe. Bring out the best robe. Put it on him. That is a sign of distinction. What did did the boy have on before this? Well, he didn't have no money. He'd been working with some pigs. I don't think he looked very presentable. Let's put this on you. And let's put a ring on you that represents authority, that you are not just a nobody. No, no, you have authority Here's sandals for your feet. You're not like a barefoot slave anymore. No, you're going to dress like my son. And let's kill the fattened calf. We've been fattening that thing up for some special occasion. Y'all, this is a special occasion. This is a big deal. We ain't going to the deep freezer in the fridge. No, we are going to get some real good live meat. We're going to eat. We're going to celebrate like it's 1999, except I don't know what year it is. They're going to party. It's going to be so good. It's interesting that the father overlooked his son's filth and embraced him. You know, if you saw him from a long way away, you may not have known the smell that he was carrying from the pigs. You may not have realized how dirty he was. But somehow, father didn't care. The father just ran and embraced his boy and kissed him. He loved his son where his son was, but he also loved him too much to leave him there. Bring out the robe. Bring out the ring. We ain't leaving you like this, son. You're home now. You're home. And to me, this is the best place for this parable to end. It's great. (laughs) This is how all the other parables ended. We had a lost sheep. We found the sheep. We celebrated. We had a lost coin. We found the coin. We celebrated. We had a lost son. We found the son. We're celebrating. Just wrap it up, Jesus. Let's move on. Go heal somebody else. But no, not Jesus. He doesn't stop here. Because Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees and these scribes. Verse 25 says, now his older son, oh yeah, I forgot about him. The older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. I always found it interesting that in the midst of the celebration, the father stepped out of the celebration looking for his older son. He recognized his older son wasn't here. He stepped out And I guess it really shouldn't surprise me because this is the same father who saw his younger son while he was still a long way off. It's as though the father desires for both of his boys to be with him doing what he's doing. Verse 29 says, but he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I've been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet, You have never even given me like a young goat, let alone a fattened calf, so that I might celebrate with my friends. 
But, but when, when this son of yours came, he has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. I don't know if you can recognize this, but this boy is bitter. This boy is angry. Notice he doesn't say in verse 30, when my brother came. No, no, no. He says, when this son of yours came. He doesn't even want to recognize his relationship in connection to his brother. That ain't my brother. No, that's your son. And prostitutes, how would the older boy know what the younger brother was doing in a far off country? He's just mad. The boy may have been a prostitute. We don't know. But he's just, ah, he's probably been out there with them prostitutes. Verse 31. The father says to him, son, you have always been with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. I said it earlier, parables require listeners to be self-aware and appropriately place themselves in the story. And in case you missed it, friends, the older brother was the Pharisees and the scribes. They had an attitude of superiority. They functioned from a place of exclusivity. They showed a lack of concern for any sinners. The older brother was bitter. He was self-satisfied. He was self-righteous. He was self-centered. He was filled with self-pity. He was loveless. And he thought the worst of others and in fact was envious of his brother who was a sinner. And he was ungrateful. And I think this is important. The primary point of the parable is not for us to not be the younger brother. The primary point is for us not to be the older brother. See, the younger brother represents the tax collectors and the sinners that wanted to be near Jesus. God and consequently Jesus are the father in the story. And while this story has been titled the parable of the prodigal son, I believe a better title would be the parable of the father's love. Let me ask you what's more impressive. Was it the boy's return that was impressive or was it the father's response? I'll tell you, I'm less impressed by the boy's resolve to come home when his world collapsed. I'm more impressed with the father welcoming him and the generosity he gave. See, if you read this story like I do, the younger son doesn't deserve to be found. He deserves to be forgotten. He's a jerk, and he's broke all the rules. He deserves, if anything, to be disowned. If I was writing the story, when he showed back up, the father would say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. (laughs) Go back where you came from. You took all I had, see ya. But that's not the story Jesus is sharing. And I think this is important. Lost people matter to God. The son prepared a speech for the father, believing that the father might be mad at his behavior. He was ready to say, hey, I don't deserve anything. 
But the father doesn't express anger or disappointment when he sees this boy. And because of this, yeah, lost people matter to God, but God should matter to lost people. Because friends, you need God. Being lost, we'll be honest, it can be fun for a while. The pleasure of sin, yeah, that's real. That's why people sin. If it was miserable, they wouldn't do it. The pleasure of sin is real, but, but so is the price of sin. And if you ever come to your senses, like our boy did, you'll know that you can't fix your life by working harder in the pigsty. You must go home to the Father. The only way that your life will change is in the presence of God. And the first step you have to take toward God is what the younger son said. I have sinned. The beginning point of moving towards the Father, I, I have sinned. If you feel distant from God, chances are it's because you did the leaving. But you can return, and the best time to return is today. And although you may feel like, I need to clean some things up before I go back, no, just come as you are. Don't wait. Be like the younger son and know that it's better to stink of pig in the father's arms than alone in some distant country. So this morning, I want to invite you to come home. You may not feel worthy. I don't deserve to be a son. Hey, you're right. But God says everyone deserves to be found. Would you just come home? Would you come to the Father? He's waiting. He's looking. He's ready to run to you and embrace you. In Luke 15, we started with 100 sheep and one lost. Then we had 10 coins and one lost. But in our final story, we don't have two sons and one lost. We actually have two sons and both of them are lost. See, to be lost in a distant country is one thing, but to be lost at home is something entirely different. And while the behavior of the brothers couldn't be more different, there seems to be the same root issue. See, both of the boys wanted the gifts of the father rather than the father himself. As Pastor Tim Keller points out, they both were using the father for their own self-centered ends rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own sake. This means that you can rebel against God and be alienated from him either by breaking his rules or by keeping all of them diligently. See, the older son, despite his obedience, is also far from the father's love. Even as the father tries to welcome him into the celebration, I don't want to go. I don't want to be with you, dad, and what you're doing. And our story ends. And we have no idea what the older brother did. Did he listen to his father? Did he say, you're right? And did he join his father in the prayer? I don't know. Jesus just ends the story. 
The parable of the sheep and the coin, they emphasize God's seeking love, seeking and trying to find what was lost. But this parable emphasizes God's receiving love. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, draw near to God, and guess what? He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This morning, as we wrap up this series, the question I have for you is, are you ready to move from death to life? Are you ready to move from being lost to being found? I don't know who in the story you most identify with. Maybe you were there with the Father and you were like, I want freedom, I want independence, I don't want to be controlled, and you made a move to do things your way. And maybe it's time for you to return. If so, you can move from death to life. You can go from being lost to being found. Or maybe you never had that rebellious outward thing, but you know in your heart, I'm just going through some motions. I'm just going through the religious motions of trying to do what I know is right. I want to be morally right, but at the same time, I feel like God is really far away. I don't feel like he is with me. I don't feel as though I am embracing him and his love for me. I feel as though, although I'm maybe doing the right thing and I'm in the right spot like the older brother, I'm still dead. I still need life. And so today the question is, do you want to experience life? Because today can be the day you return to the Father. He's waiting with his arms wide open. He's ready to embrace you in your stink, in your smell, in who you are. He wants to throw his arms around you and pull you close. He wants to kiss you. And he doesn't want to leave you this way no more. He wants to change you. So where we're at today, I just want to invite you to bow your heads. And I want to invite you to maybe just talk to your heavenly father. And if you're saying, you know what? I want to embrace this life. I don't want to have death anymore. Just maybe whisper to God, I have sinned. God, I have sinned. Please forgive me. I give you my life. You can move from death to life. This is his first conversation. You're going to have a lot more with God the Father, but it starts right here. I have sinned. Please forgive me. I give you my life. This morning, I would like to pray for those who are making that step of moving from death to life and if you say, yes, that's me, I'm moving, I wanna, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting the life that Jesus has, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you, I can know who you are. I just wanna pray that God would be with you as you make this new journey. God, you see the hands that are raised in this room. God, you know the people who are watching online. God, your spirit is present here. And Lord, with these hands raised, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would minister to them in such a way that they feel your arms of love around them, 
I pray, God, that you would allow there to be a peace that comes to their mind. I pray, Lord, that you would allow there to be a newness in the life. I pray that the things that were old, that maybe caused them to run away, God, that they would see them in a transformed new way. And Lord, that they would be welcomed, Lord, by this church community into your presence. And God, I pray that we would join with the angels in heaven and that we would rejoice and that we would celebrate for one sinner turning, God. Lord, there's a party to be had. Lord, hear the prayers of them. Lord, may this be the beginning of a new journey of following you and being home in your presence. We thank you for your love, and we thank you, God, that you are better to us than we deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, there's some people today who raised their hand that said, I want that life. Can we celebrate with the angels in heaven right now? Come on. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.